I'd love to have you take your Bibles and begin making your way to the book of Jonah, where we will find ourselves now continuing our second week of our summer series, looking at the minor prophets. Um, As you are finding Jonah, uh, I was thinking this week about a part of church history. Oftentimes when we think about the history of the church, uh, a lot of people think about the kind of the dark ages and see it as one large chunk of dark ages. But actually, there are several smaller dark ages with moments of um, good things happening in between. One of the good kind of bright spots in that era was the Charlemagne Empire. And during this time, the church was growing and missions was happening and people were obeying the Great Commission and sending people. And even though there was a lot of strife in the world and there were people who were coming in uh, invading Europe, uh, one of the things that was very helpful is there was already people sent to them. And so as the invaders came, they already had a certain amount of respect for the, the church. And um, it's very interesting to see how the church grew and prospered. Until things kind of slowed down. The wheels of mission slowed down. Churches started to gather more and more opulence around them. Buildings became more glitzy and everything. And what's very fascinating as we look at world history is Jesus promised to build his church. He promised to build his church whether we are obedient or disobedient. And church history over and over again demonstrates that even in times of disobedience with the church, Jesus will continue to build his church. And as missions slowed down, what God did at that point, as he so often does, is he brought the mission field to the people. And it was a very dark time, a bloody time. God brought the Vikings. And the Vikings started invading, and they were the people that, as the wheels of mission slowed down, nobody ever got to them. They came not caring at all about the churches. In fact, they saw the churches and all the glitter and glamour of the churches and said, hey, these are great places to pillage. One writer says this, Vikings seemed attracted like magnets to the monastic centers of scholarship and Christian devotion. They took special delight in burning churches, putting human life to the sword right in the churches and in selling monks into slavery. They go on to talk about one writer, uh, contemporary of the time, wrote this about the Vikings, or as he calls them, the Northmen. The Northmen ceased not to slay and carry into captivity the Christian people, to destroy the churches and to burn the towns. Everywhere there is nothing but dead bodies, clergy and laymen, nobles and common people, women and children. There is no road or place where the ground is not covered with corpses. We live in distress and anguish before the spectacle of destruction of the Christian people. The writer goes on um, to say, no wonder the Anglican prayer book contains the prayer from the fury of the Northmen, O Lord, deliver us. This was a dark era in the church. It was one that was unpleasant. It was bloody. It was violent. And in the time, the people who looked at it said, the Christian people are being decimated. What is God doing? Why would God let this happen? Now removed from that era and with history under our belt, we can look back and see what God was doing. Mission had stopped. God brought the mission field to the church. And as the, the Vikings took away monks and sold them into slavery, as they stole women and forced them into marriages and forced them to become concubines and other things, it was those very people who began to share the gospel with their captors. The author goes on to say this, in any case, as 
he says, as Christopher Dawson puts it, the unparalleled devastation of England and the continent was not a victory for paganism. The Northmen who landed on the continent under Rollo eventually became the Christianized Normans. The Danish who took over huge sections of Middle England along with the invaders from Norway who planted their own kind in many other parts of England and Ireland were soon to also become Christian as a consequence. The gospel was too powerful. Christian culture spread back into Scandinavia. This stemmed largely from England from which came the first monastic communities and early missionary bishops. What England lost, Scandinavia gained. As the church failed to be obedient to God's mission, God brought the mission to them. And Jesus fulfilled his promise that I will build my church. The reason I read this, this is, in my mind, one of the amazing parts of history where we see something bad and with some hindsight, we also see how God used terrible things to continue working his purpose. And we learn that God is jealous of having the nations come to a knowledge of him and worship him. His mission will not be stopped by disobedience. And as I thought about that, this ties into where we come today with Jonah. Because Jonah is one example of this. Where God can still do his work, even through a disobedient prophet. I trust you have found your way to Jonah. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pray and ask God for his help as we come to the word today. And then I want to go ahead and jump into it. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity for brothers and sisters in Christ to gather around your word. And Lord, as we open it, we ask that you would speak to us. Use your word to cut through and to expose what needs to be exposed in our hearts. Teach us and make us teachable people. God, we need your help in this because we so easily resist what you say. And God, there's a lot to learn here. Moreover, God, as we come to Jonah today, this is a passage of scripture that we are so familiar with. Easily the most commonly known of the minor prophets, one of the most popular things in the Bible. We've seen it in children's movies and in books and all sorts of things. And God, it can be hard for us to come to something fresh when we already have heard it. So I'd pray this morning, God, you would help us to to hear, to not tune it out. And for this, we will definitely need your help. So Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen. Wonderful. So as you found Jonah, I also trust that you found that sermon uh, set of sermon notes in your bulletin, and we will be making use of those. Several items of review there, and I will just touch very, very briefly on there. But the Minor Prophets is a collection of 12 shorter books in the Bible, called Minor because their length, not their importance. And they're kept together because they all fit on one scroll. So they actually cover a very broad span of time. So we talked last week about the history of the nation of Israel, how they split into two kingdoms, the North Kingdom, the South Kingdom, Israel, North, Judah, South. Um, as Israel in the North ended up going into Assyrian captivity in 722. As Judah in the south ended up going into Babylonian captivity in 586. And then as those who went into Babylonian captivity came back 70 years later, these minor prophets are written at all different times. Some of them are written to the north. Some of them are written to the south. Some of them are written to the the people who return from captivity. But as we look at the varying messages, the varying um, topics, the the varying amount of time um, when these were written, one thing does hold these together besides the fact they all fit on a scroll. 
Uh, the thing that holds these together is the Bible tells a single story of God's redemptive plan. And we looked at last week, Jeremiah, we, we briefly touched in Jeremiah, the promise of the new covenant. That God promised one day he's going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be about following external rules. It's going to be about giving us a new heart that's actually going to want to obey. And as God is coming, going about fulfilling his promise, one of the things in the Meyer prophets is, I see how God is working towards that promise. How he's going about cultivating a new heart for his people. That's hence the artwork and the name of the series title. It's God. He's the one cultivating a new heart, not us. And so we're looking at how is God keeping to his promises despite people who don't deserve his promises, uh, despite people who fail to obey over and over again. How is God going about keeping to his promises? Last week we looked at Hosea and saw some of that. Um, And Hosea's marriage to Gomer, which symbolized God's relationship with Israel. And today we're also going to see this amazing, unrelenting love of God for people who don't deserve it in Jonah's story. So let's look at Jonah. I want to read actually just the first four verses to start with. There's so much packed in here, and I'd love for you to follow along with me. It says this in verse 1 of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, first three verses is all I'm going to start with. A lot packed in there, though. Jonah, it's a word from the Lord. When this appears in the Bible, this means that God is giving a commission. This isn't Jonah thinking, oh, I think I should serve God in some way. It's not him coming up with something. God is telling him, go and do this. Sent by God. What does Jonah do? Well, he's in the Galilee. Uh, Nineveh is northeast, about 500 miles or so. Present day, modern Iraq, northern Iraq. He instead goes the opposite direction. Instead of going northeast, he goes southwest to Joppa, the completely opposite direction. But that's not good enough for him. He gets on a ship to Tarshish. Tarshish is in the southern tip of Spain. I'm going to go to the furthest known edge of the world. At Jonah's time, that's as far away as you could get. He's going all the way to Spain. What is causing Jonah to do this? He's told to go and speak to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, what we'll find out in a moment, was a very evil, very violent place. What's causing Jonah to go the opposite direction, to disobey God? Is it fear? If I go to these violent people, they'll hurt me. Is it hatred? I don't like these people, therefore I don't want to go talk to them. What is causing Jonah to go the opposite direction? Well, let, let's, let's find out about this. First of all, we need to look at some of the details here uh, of, of Jonah's story. And what we are going to see here, we want to take a look at who some of, these, some of these folks are. The setup here then. Who is Jonah? Jonah, son of Amittai, was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So this is before the northern kingdom is conquered. And Jonah has a very interesting ministry, whereas a lot of prophets were like people who came and gave a message of your doom is imminent. Jonah had a very different message. In 2 Kings, we actually see this message. 2 Kings 14 says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So Jeroboam II becomes the king of the northern kingdom. 
says he reigned 41 years and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hepfer. So here's Jonah, son of Amittai, and he prophesies, God is going to expand your borders. And Jeroboam II, this evil king, expands the borders of Israel back to basically the, the borders from the golden era of King Solomon. This is an unprecedented time of prosperity. So Jonah has a very different message from other prophets. Uh, during this time, Jonah had prophesied restoration of Israel's territory and on your study and great prosperity. In many ways, Jonah was a prosperity preacher. He was a popular guy. If he was here today and talking about how great America is going to be and we're going to get even more territory and a great economy, everybody would love hearing Jonah. They want to put him on Time Magazine. Jonah, we like when you talk. You're a positive guy. This was his ministry in Israel. And of course, he wasn't making up this message. God was giving him this message. And yes, God was giving a time of prosperity. Why? Who was Jeroboam II? Who was the northern kingdom? Well, they were evil. They were unrepentant. They were in unprecedented sin. You might wonder, why would God do that? Is this God affirming their way of life? Is this God saying, I approve of you? No, in fact, sometimes when God gives prosperity, it is his way intending to bring repentance. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but perhaps you know you've really messed up and then something good happens to you. Colloquially speaking, the universe smiles upon you and it might cause you to say, I've been such a fool. The idea of, I don't deserve God's mercy, but God just showed mercy to me. Maybe I should change something. This is one way God brings about repentance. We saw it last week in Hosea. As Hosea's wife was being unfaithful to him and being with other men, and she kind of says, hey, I'm going to go after my lovers because they give me water and wool and flax and bread and drink. In other words, my life is working out so good, I'm just going to stay here. She had misunderstood the kindness being shown to her. What was the reality? It was Hosea providing all those things for her, trying to woo her back. It was an example of what God does to his own people. Why does God give more prosperity to him? Why does he speak through Jonah to say, your borders are going to expand? It's to try to convince Israel, we've been not even deserving of this kindness and God's still kind to us. Maybe we should turn back to him. But here's the rub. They don't. They don't turn back to him. And this is indeed a big issue. This is the principle we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, in your own life, if there are things that you are messing with that you know you should not be, and yet life is still going pretty good for you, you have the money you need, you have opportunities and all that, please do not take that as thinking God is approving of you. It might be God trying to bring you to repentance. But here's the thing. In Jonah's day, Israel didn't respond. They remained unrepentant. And Jonah knew the next step in this process would be a different kind of method to bring about repentance. 
In fact, Jonah had some contemporaries of the day at the same time that Jonah was preaching. Also to the northern kingdom was Hosea, who we looked at last week. And Hosea's message was very different. Hosea was preaching a message of judgment is coming. In addition, Amos was a contemporary. Amos was actually from the southern kingdom, but he came up and toured the northern kingdom, was mortified by what he saw, and speaks a message of judgment is coming. And what would judgment look like? It would come in the form of another nation coming in and conquering and taking people into captivity. Jonah knew this was going to happen because the people had not responded to God's call for repentance through prosperity. So why does Jonah run? Why does Jonah run? Well, what Jonah knows is he is told to go and preach to Nineveh. He knows that the very fact that God is giving a message of repentance is intended to cause a response from them. Before we get there, who was Nineveh? Nineveh, on your study sheet, it was an Assyrian city marked by extreme violence. They would eventually become the capital of Assyria at this point. They're not quite the capital, still an important city. But God says this about them. Arise, go to Nineveh, great city, and call it against it because their evil has come up before me. When God says this, this is a bad thing. You might come to a recollection of another time God said something like this with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this idea in scripture that there is a degree to which God, even though all sin is abhorrent to him, he's merciful and patient, but there's a point to which sin piles up that he has to address it. With Sodom and Gomorrah, um, their evil had come up before him and he sent some angels to rescue a few people and then destroyed the place. The Assyrians were violent people. Well known in the ancient world, they wrote about their cruelty to the people they captured. What they did to people was for the sake of humiliating them publicly and in the worst and most creative of ways. Um, I have some of their writings, but I don't even want to read them in a public setting because they're too graphic. One leader of the Assyrian Empire that was around a little while before Jonah's day, but he would have known of him, was Asser Nasser Paul II, who was so brutal in his ruling of conquered people that the conquered people actually rose up in revolt against him. And his response to this revolt was a two-day-long massacre that went well beyond the intent of just quelling a rebellion. The massacre included the old men, the young men, boys and girls, and the things that he did to them were horrific. And he wrote about it, boasting of it. These were extremely violent people. So why did Jonah run? Why did Jonah run? Well, Jonah knew this. The preaching of judgment implies an offer of mercy. He knew this. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, no message of judgment was given. Merely angel pulled people out. Judgment came because no mercy was going to be offered. But any time that God has a message of judgment, the intended effect is repentance and mercy is available. This is actually the primary way that God extends his mercy is by sending a message of judgment. We'll look at that a little later here. Jonah knew this in his disobedience. It's not driven by fear. I don't even think it was driven by hatred, though he probably hated the Assyrians Most of the people in the ancient world did hate the Assyrians. 
but rather I think that his, his whole motive for running was a hope of saving Israel. Remember what the other prophets are preaching. Amos, Hosea, judgment is coming to Israel because they haven't repented. And judgment's going to come in the form of a nation conquering you and taking you into captivity. At that day and age, the main nation that was capable of this was Assyria. The Assyrians did a really good job at conquering people and taking them into captivity. That was their MO. This is their bread and butter. And Jonah's sitting here thinking, okay, God, you're going to destroy them, but you want me to go preach to them a message of judgment. And I know this means that mercy is offered. And if they repent, they're going to stick around and be able to be used by you to punish Israel because Israel is not repenting. So what if I run away? They never hear this message. They never repent and you destroy them. Ah, I can save Israel. And therefore what Jonah is doing is he's figuring they can't be used by God to punish Israel if they don't exist. And off he goes. Now, you probably can see some problems with Jonah's plan. There's some holes in his plan. First of all, he's talking about fleeing from the reach of God. You might say, Jonah, you're a prophet. Don't you know the words of King David, Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me, hold me. I think he knows these words, but we have this incredible ability as people to kind of take what we know and put it aside to follow our own disobedience. So here's Jonah, he's going out of God's reach in his mind. And in fact, I think he thinks he's getting away with it. Because after all, he goes to Joppa, nothing happens, God doesn't stop him. He finds just the ship he needs to go to Tarshish. He has the right amount of money. And on the ship, now he's in the belly of the ship. And ah, I have gotten away from God. And of course, in the ancient mindset, uh, most uh, people believed that the gods of the world had no um, jurisdiction over the sea. The sea was the source of chaos and evil. In fact, in Israel, a lot of people were worshiping Baal. Uh, and in their mind, Baal didn't have any jurisdiction of the sea. When they did sacrifice and Baal was supposed to bring rain for their crops, Baal had to go and fight the monsters of the sea to bring rain back. There is only one people who believe their God had jurisdiction over the sea. It was the Hebrew people because they believe their God, the God of heaven and earth, creator of land and sea, the one who made Leviathan, the God of Israel, the true and living God. And Jonah should know this. But in the ancient mindset, Jonah's in the one place where he should be safest from God. He's out in the middle of the ocean. Nobody has jurisdiction. Surely I have escaped from the reach of God. And I think that God purposely let him get that far, the farthest place, the place where he should have been safest to now address him. And what we're going to see is a showdown here between Jonah versus the sovereign creator. So here he thinks he's out of God's reach. And we're going to see that God now is going to demonstrate his complete sovereignty over everything. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and even cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil had come upon us. Lots were like dice colored on one side, uncolored on the other side. It was basically a way of eliminating. You eliminate one person at a time and lo and behold, Jonah is the last man standing. They cast lots, lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Irony here is we're following the story of one of Israel's prophets, but the only people so far we see praying in the whole passage is the pagan sailors. And Jonah, who thinks he can get out of God's reach, suddenly we see that God is sovereign over the wind and the sea and the boat and the lots. Jonah now knows that he's trapped. His journey west is over. So the people say to him in verse 11, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that the great temptest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. More irony here. These pagan sailors come to a knowledge of God. They make sacrifices. They make vows. God has used the disobedient Jonah even here to convert pagans. God will see his plan to fruition through our obedience or our disobedience. Now at this moment, please don't see Jonah as having a heart change. His statement of throw me into the sea is not coming from an unrepentant heart. I say this because if he had repented at this moment... Surely they would have been allowed to get to the shore and he could have started walking the right direction. But I believe that if they had gotten to shore, he would have hit the ground and started continuing west. No, Jonah's out of options of going west. And so he, he plays the final card he thinks he has in his hand. Well, if you're not going to let me go west, then I'm going to die. Because if I die... That message of repentance will never get to Nineveh. They will be destroyed and I will save my people. I am the savior of Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Bad, bad thinking. And so this is Jonah's final and ultimate act of defiance. God, I would rather die than go there. But this is also where we see God's ultimate act of sovereignty. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, God's ultimate act of sovereignty wasn't providing a fish. His ultimate act of sovereignty was over life and death itself. Jonah, you are not even allowed to take your life unless I allow it. 
I don't know what that three days and three nights looked like in the belly of the fish. Perhaps Jonah tried other creative ways to end his life. But God would not allow it. And this is where repentance finally comes. At the end of three days and three nights, Jonah finally repents. His heart turns. He prays to God. We won't look at the entire prayer, but the last two verses of it, verse 8 and 9 in chapter 2. Notice the words Jonah prays. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I will obey you, God. I'll go. Then he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't think that this is Jonah's reflection on his own salvation. I think this is the admission of salvation doesn't depend on me. Salvation is yours, Lord. Salvation is yours for Israel. And if you want salvation for Nineveh, salvation belongs to you. It's not my choice who gets saved and who doesn't. So as he repents, then God's response is, verse 10, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Now the story starts over again. Chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it. The message I tell you this time, Jonah does what he's supposed to do. He goes there and he preaches. Here's this Israelite prophet preaching to a city that has no regard for Israel. And yet Jonah's worst fears come true. The people actually listen to him. Why do they listen to him? I don't know. Some people have kind of postulated, well, they worship some fish gods. Maybe seeing him get spit up by a fish caused something. Maybe he looked really weird from being in a fish for three days. I don't know. He got spit up like 500 miles from there. I hope he took a shower before he got there. But the thing is, we don't need to know what it was that caused them to listen because we kind of know it's implied. It's the sovereign hand of God. God has controlled the wind, the waves, the the boat, the sailors, the dice, the fish. He has not allowed Jonah to take his life. And now he comes to the city. Is there any surprise that repentance comes? And the repentance is extreme and kind of funny. Because the people first listen and they start repenting. Then the king gets word of it. He starts repenting. He issues this edict. Verse 7 of chapter 3, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. The common action to do when you're repenting, put on sackcloth, it's itchy, it doesn't look nice. It's an external example of what's going on internally. To fast and not eat anything, another example of repenting. But notice how extreme their repentance is. They even make their livestock repent. The cows are wearing sackcloth. This is really strange. The cows have to fast. Surely this is more than is needed. And yet God looks on it and he has mercy on them. Now understand this, that this is, while Jonah is sent to Nineveh, the book of Jonah is written to Israel. This should cause the Israelites to think of something. If even the evil Assyrians repent to this extreme of a degree, maybe we as God's people should also repent likewise. It also becomes a condemnation. If you don't repent... When those people repented, then you do deserve judgment. And so the people repent. Now what's Jonah's response? Verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's response is one of anger. 
He's not happy. Is it because he just simply hates the Assyrians? Well, no. He knows, knows that God has relented from destroying them. And unrepentant Israel is now in danger. But in hopes of maybe their repentance was short-lived or not really true repentance, he makes a booth outside the city and kind of waits and sees, well, maybe the city will get destroyed after all. And it's in this moment that God teaches Jonah the final lesson here. Jonah's sitting in the booth outside the city, watching over it, waiting for fire and brimstone to rain down. And God causes a big plant to grow over him in a single night. And again, another sovereign act of God. Provide shade. Jonah likes the shade. He's comfortable. He's happy. Then God provides a worm that eats the plant. And the next day it dies, shrivels up. Then God brings east, scorching east wind, the text says. And the sun beats down on Jonah. He's discomfortable. He's unhappy. He says, I'm better off dead. Just kill me now. And this is where God confronts him in the final section of this, of this uh, book. Jonah 4, 9 through 11. God comes to him and says, do you well, do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What's God saying? Jonah, you're mad about this plant. You had nothing to do with it. But here I am. I've demonstrated my sovereignty over and over again. I'm the creator of everything. I'm responsible for everything. I created these people. Don't I have a right to show my mercy to these people? By the way, Jonah, there's 120,000 people, innocent lives here, who don't know their right hand from their left. It's probably referring to children, perhaps also to the slaves in Nineveh. But people who are innocent. And in another bit of humor here, God also has mercy and cares about those repenting cows. And that's where we end. And Jonah is confronted with this, that God is the sovereign creator, has right to be show mercy on who he shows mercy. And the people of Nineveh do not deserve any mercy. They're undeserving. And yet God is showing as the creator, he has the right to have mercy on them. And he sees things that we don't see. Now, as we look at what this means for us then, one of the, the lessons that Jonah is teaching is that God is working out his salvation plan, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it. Israel will remain unrepentant, then Judah will remain unrepentant, but God will continue to work out his plan. He will continue cultivating a new heart in his people because it is his prerogative to do this. Now, some things for us to consider. Jonah is a book that calls for personal repentance. It was written for the Israelites to look at what the people of Nineveh did and say, maybe we should repent too. It should cause the same thing in you and I. Now, in a church setting like this, I don't know where all of you come from spiritually. I imagine that sitting in this room, some of you might be here just because you like to be around people that smile or you like free coffee or... But I do know this, that the Bible calls you to repent. And one of the main ways that God calls us to repentance is by the warning of his coming judgment. 
I said earlier that this is one of the primary ways that God extends his mercy. A God who says a message of judgment is not a mean-hearted God. He is a kind-hearted God because he gives a message of judgment because he wants to show mercy. Oftentimes in our day and age, in our culture, the message of the gospel is often watered down to, do you want a nice life now? Would you like a better marriage? Would you like more well-behaved children? Would you like more financial stability? Would you like more emotional stability and all that stuff? And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, repent because God's judgment is coming. There's coming a day when each of us will have to answer before all holy God. And if you are not putting your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you're not putting your trust in Jesus as your savior, you will answer before an all holy God. And this is a message that comes up over and over again in the Bible, not because God is unkind, but because he wants to extend mercy. Acts 17.30, Paul speaking on Mars Hill to the Greeks, using this great example of the unknown God they had. And he's saying, here is who the unknown God is. What does he say to him? He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God commands you to repent because a day of justice is coming. Was this just Paul? Was, <clears throat> was Paul just a, an angry guy? Well, no, because Jesus said similar things. We just finished our series in Matthew. Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, it by, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew ten twenty eight. And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who, cannot, can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The warning of God's judgment is a sign of his kindness and desire for you to repent. Even the verse we love to share with our children has this inside of it. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's judgment implied there. What's the other side of that though? Well, you do believe in God, you have eternal life. And I don't know where you all stand today, but if you are sitting here and you have never repented, and maybe you're just here because you like the atmosphere, or maybe you're just thinking Christianity leads to a slightly better life, the real message of the Bible is you will answer to a holy God someday. There is judgment coming. And you need to repent because God wants to show his mercy to you. And if you are here trusting Jesus as your savior, the message to us is to never water down the message because this is the primary way that God demonstrates his offer of mercy. What more in Jonah? One more thing I want to talk about this morning, and that is he was given a task. He ran from it. I wonder if sometimes we might be tempted similarly. But what Jonah shows us as well as world history, God will complete his mission, whether we're obedient or disobedient. Jonah was disobedient. God still used him to do exactly what he wanted because he's the sovereign God of the universe. The church in 800 AD was disobedient, but God still used them to reach the Vikings. What I do know that is when God uses us in disobedience, 
It is not a fun thing. Far better to be obedient. Is it any wonder that right now, as the United States is sending fewer missionaries than ever before, that God is sending the world in unprecedented numbers than ever before? Do you see the incredible opportunity here for us to, at this moment, to obey and to reach those that God is sending us? Or we could disobey, and God will still use us to reach those he's sending us. It just won't be in a happy way. I know a lot of people worry about immigrants and refugees and whatnot. Can I say that the only way to ensure that things will go poorly is to disobey God? But if we respond to that in obedience, things will probably go pretty well. Because the gospel cannot be restrained. It turned the bloody Vikings into some of the greatest mission senders in history. So what should we do? We should be praying and giving and sending and investing in world mission because this is our primary task as a church. We should be welcoming those that God has brought to our doorstep. What an incredible opportunity. Even as we look at ministries here at Sunset, we have seen people come to Christ that we would have needed passports to go see otherwise and probably would have had a hard time getting visas to see them. And yet God is bringing people to Christ here. And on a more personal level then, is a reminder to us to never look at someone and say they are too far gone for God to reach. They are too hard for God. And I'm not just talking about immigrants here. I'm talking about people in your life. All of us have people that we know that perhaps we've given up hope. God could never reach them, right? Well, one lesson Jonah teaches us is the sovereign God, the God who who controls the waves and the wind and the boat and the fish and the dice and the plants, and the worm, and the eastern wind, and the sun, is also the God who allowed a single Israelite prophet who was reluctant and didn't want to be there to turn an entire city of the most violent people to repentance. And God is no less sovereign today. And let us not forget it. Let us not give up. Would you stand and let's pray as we head out from here. Let's pray. God, we, we, we are so thankful. Thankful again that your word, your word is described as a sword that cuts through. And, oh, we need that. I think like Jonah, we oftentimes will convince ourselves of things that we, we know is untrue. And we need to be reminded of what truth is. God, it's my heart that Sunset Bible Church would be an obedient tool in your hand and not disobedient. And I think that we are, God. I praise you and thank you that you are using us and that you've instilled that kind of heart in us. But I would also pray that for each person here at an individual level as well. God, if there are those who are here today who have never repented, I pray that you would convict hearts today. And bring about repentance. That we would come to you and seek your mercy and your forgiveness. Because you offer it. And we thank you for for even sharing a message of judgment to us. Because you only do that when you want to extend mercy. Lord, help us not to disobey that command to repent. But help us to, to obey it. And to turn to you. 
God, as each person from here goes to a different place this week, whether at work or at home or day camp, God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would have your hand on us, that you would cause us to speak words of truth, words of grace. But Lord, help us to be people that point others to you. And we will trust you in this this morning. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen.